It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. I wish you could see the twinkle in Mavis Holt's eyes and her beautiful smile as she chatted with me about her life and her quilting. She was a pioneer in her field of work. Life wasn't easy, but she found satisfaction in what she accomplished. Mavis, thank you so much for joining me on A Quilter's Life. It's nice for you to have me. I wanted to ask how you heard about A Quilter's Life. Actually, it was Mark who called me and told me that that was a website. That was something that I might enjoy doing. He asked me if he could give you my name. I know Mark fairly well, so. Yeah, Mark Tenney. I stopped on my way here. Oh. And got to meet him. So great shop. I want to jump back to where were you born and raised? I'm from Minnesota, upper north central area of Minnesota, where it gets a little bit colder than normal. But I guess they had a pretty bad winter this year. I grew up on a farm and we had a lake on the farm. It was a half mile lakeshore. It was rural life. And picked up by a bus every morning to go to school and come home, do your chores and your homework, <laughs> that type of thing. But yeah, I come from a large family, which was typical back then. We had our chores and things we had to do, mm-hmm. but it was uh, farm life. I would say more hobby farm. We didn't have a lot of cattle. At one point we had a lot of chickens, but <laughs> they come and go as we grew older. Yeah. So, Can you tell me about a chore that you would have had? Actually, my chore was washing dishes. I was the middle kid. Part of what I did was we had Jersey cows. We had five of them. And I milked two of them. And my sister, one of them milked another one of them. And then my dad milked the cantankerous one. <laughs> <laughs> but it was that type of chores. Well, we did burn wood for heat. So we had to bring wood in all the time. And of course, watching the younger siblings. <laughs> But basically household chores that washing, you know, laundry and cleaning and cooking. Each one of us sort of went into our own little niche. And of course, mine was washing dishes. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a lot of that. I made bread, made our own bread. So I learned to bake at the age of 12. My mother would have to finish the dough because we had one of those big bread pans with the lid on. When I made bread, we baked with the wood cook stove. And so I would make like 12 loaves at a time. It would last a week. So my mother would finish the dough until I got old enough. It was a couple of years till my hands were strong enough to actually knead the entire dough. That was a common thing for me after a while. And I did that every week along with that and washing dishes and doing whatever chores needed to be done that somebody else didn't get done. (laughs) You know, we all kind of worked together on that. Everybody got everything done. So, I wonder if that's a middle child trait. Our middle child seemed to pick up the slack of the others. Well, do you have a special childhood memory? Basically, we did a lot of different things. My mother was very creative. But the one memory I do remember really well was because we lived by lake, we had a lot of company. A lot of cousins would come over and summers were hurried to get our work done because eventually somebody would come for swimming or we'd have picnics on the lakeshore and stuff. And so there were a lot of people around. And those were some of my best memories because I just enjoyed the cousins. We got to see them more often because they'd come from the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and uh, they would visit us during the summer. How fun to get to visit a farm from the city. Yeah. (laughs) Now, did you ever get to visit the city from the farm? I did. There were a couple summers. I was about 10, and then the summer after when I was 11, my uncle picked me up because they lived in Minneapolis, and 
my cousin was just a year younger than myself. And so we played together a lot. And so he just took me for about a month and I walked all over the Twin Cities with her. And she knew her way around. I remember looking at street signs. And when I grew up and got into the Twin Cities later as an adult, I couldn't believe where we walked as 10-year-olds and 9-year-olds. I remember seeing Hennepin Avenue, University Avenue. Those are downtown St. Paul, Minneapolis. <laughs> and we just walked. We were kids. We took our younger siblings with us. <laughs> uh, I remember one time we walked all the way from their house, which was somewhere around Como Avenue, and got all the way up to Brooklyn Center. We stopped at a mall and were very kindly told, don't touch anything, because I'm sure we had chocolate candy from <laughs> our face to our hands to anything. So anyway, we went from the house in Como to Brooklyn Center to my aunt's place. And then we were there for several weeks, and I played with those cousins, and they were also a large family. Well, both families were. So we, I enjoyed being with my cousins for a couple months for two summers in there which was really nice because it gave me a different outlook on what was out beyond the farm. Yeah. I remember those very well, and they, they were a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Can you tell me about your employment? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I graduated high school, and I had just turned 18, and I went to Mexico with some missionaries and discovered that wasn't my calling. <laughs> That was not something I would choose to do. But I was there nine months in Mexico, and I learned enough of the language from the children so that it really was a help to me later on in life. But when I came home then, I got a job in a factory making kitchen cabinets and discovered that I really enjoyed factory work. After doing some of the actual floor work, assembling them, I asked if I could move into the drafting department where they designed the cabinets. They moved me in, which was nice because those air guns for nailing were this long. <laughs> they were like two feet long. And they were heavy and couldn't really handle them. But I managed okay. My work was fine. But I went off to the office and discovered I liked the drafting departments. Well, later on, I eventually married and had my children. And I left that company and moved down to the south of the metro Twin Cities area. My husband was working at the time, and I had my babies. And he eventually developed heart disease and eventually passed. But when he got sick, he couldn't work as much. So I began to sew as a job just from home. I had toddlers. You don't earn enough for babysitting. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't afford that. So I stayed home with the girls and I did sewing, making dresses, doing alterations. And I really enjoyed that. I had visions of eventually having an alterations shop of my own. But as time went on and my husband passed and the girls graduated, and I found a job in manufacturing of plastics and ran a plastics molding press. And as I worked there, I found that the company would pay the schooling if we worked full-time and went to school full-time. So my girls were old enough to kind of manage on their own, so I did that, and I got my drafting degree and moved up to being a drafter. And all of the pattern making I had done, because many of the designs I did in the sewing didn't exist. These girls had their own design for their weddings. We just took the pictures and put them together. <laughs> so all of that pattern making developed my sense of design and shape and size and my math skills. And so it was easy to go into drafting because then I was starting to work with robotics. Whereas when I did the press floor, we manually took the parts off the 10 ton seven ton, 40 ton, whatever presses that they were being made on. We took them off manually. The press would open and we would reach in. And we had to be careful and watch everything because at any moment, if lightning struck or something, those things would snap shut. 
And so we had to be careful. So I was already mentally designing, how would I design a piece to take off the part that was molded if I were working with a robot? And so when I got done with the drafting, I got to the office and designed end-of-arm tooling, which was the mechanical fingers that the robot would go down and take the part off, take it out. And then the, the operator didn't have to reach into the press. And I did that for a number of years. And eventually, as it was in the 90s and the early 2000s, the economy was kind of tanking <laughs> in every industry. I got laid off with like 3,000 other people in several of the jobs I had. So, of course, it means you go to another drop. I never had trouble getting a job as a drafter. The difficulty was in every job I went to was another science, and I had to learn it within days in order to be profitable for the company to keep me. And so I read a lot of technical books, but I did things from computer chips, pacemakers. <laughs> there was one job, one company did nothing but the load beam for the computer. That's the little triangular thing that reads the disk inside the computer. I learned tool and die overnight with that one. But it was just learning different things. My favorite job was one doing drafting and designing food processing equipment. And I had a lot of fun with that. Cheese cutters. <laughs> and I'm talking industrial, not, not little kitchen tools. These were industrial conveyors and cookers and pressures, washers and Anything from taking the product from the field, cleaning it, processing it, cutting it, slicing it. We made shakers too. For instance, we made an onion slicer for green peppers and then the little slices, they'd all land on a grate and the machine would shake and all the little ones would fall down and the big ones, they'd separate size. Then they'd go into a conveyor and eventually be bagged and frozen and whatever. But the entire line of the process was what we worked on. And I really enjoyed that job. Eventually, though, I wanted to move out of the metro. And so eventually I moved to the other side of Minnesota, which was Dawson. And getting jobs there was not hard either. It's just that if you were out of a job and collecting unemployment, in the metro area, you only have to drive 15 to 20, 30 minutes away from where you live. In the rural area, you have to drive an hour at least in order to qualify for your unemployment and looking for work. But I did manage to find jobs only 20 minutes away, and I learned about motors. Anything that is digital in the digital age, if it failed, this motor would pop in. Say an airplane altimeter failed. Digitally, this little electric motor, the old science would kick in and the altimeter would still work. And those are the kinds of things that that company did. So I learned all about motors and more than I cared to know. <laughs> and I learned to make grain elevators, ethanol plants, walkways, elevators of all kinds. Eventually, I worked for a company that they were working on train cars that picked up the shale with a vacuum off the tracks so that they could replace ties and rails. And uh, so I worked on train cars that sucked rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and there were other equipment too. They were into several different areas. And the agricultural were spray arms that folded up for maneuvering, but then they would unfold 120 feet out to spray. One of the last things I worked on there were the sugar beet pilers. And those were interesting because it was a huge platform machine. They let the sugar beets freeze because then they don't spoil. And then they dig them up, dirt and all, dump them in a the truck. And the truck drives onto this platform with the scales and the shakers and whatever else. And they weigh the truck full of sugar beets and dirt. Then they dump the load into something that shakes the dirt off and they weigh the empty truck and the truck drives off. Then they weigh the dirt and the dirt and the truck leave the sugar beets. And then they know how many pounds of sugar beets they had on that load. And so 
that was one of the last drafting things I did with that company. It was very interesting. I loved designing things and making things. It was just, just enjoyable. I was really glad I took drafting when I did. I was actually more of a pioneer in women in the drafting department. I'd never met a woman in the drafting until about the fourth job in. There was another woman in the department because women just didn't do drafting. <laughs> I was called a non-traditional student when I took it because there was only one other gal and she was taking architectural. I took mechanical. And so there is a difference between the two. <laughs> I really enjoyed doing that as a job. And I did that until I retired. It always amazes me that pretty much any job, there are more details than we'll ever know that go into what we do. Mm -hmm. One reason I chose drafting, because I could have taken any education because the company only required that they would be able to employ me afterwards. But they had every department there was. I could have taken nursing. They had to have an on-site medical department of some type. But I took engineering because when I looked at the job board, those were the most that were posted <laughs> in engineering. And so it was the horse that got me there the fastest. It got me a good job faster than if I'd stayed a press operator. But as much as I enjoyed the work and everything, I was a woman in a man's field. And that did have its ramifications when it came to pay. I got some interesting reactions. My first job was in the same company. They moved me from the floor to the office. I didn't get a raise. Getting to the office was my raise. That's what my supervisor told me. Just before I got laid off, I had worked my way up from bottom level drafter to one. I, I believe it goes backwards from four, three, two, one. It's the top. <laughs> and I wanted to work toward designer to actually get the title of designer. The manager I had at that time called me, and he was just a teddy bear of a guy, but he says, you'll never make it. The reason you won't make it is because you don't know enough. And the reason you don't know enough is because you're a woman. <laughs> and I just clamped my mouth shut so that I could maintain my job. <laughs> but I... Uh, Eventually, that company laid me off as the computer industry went down. Their product was to support the computer industry, and the computer was changing from hard wire to digital. And so everything was bottoming out, and 3,000 or 4,000 of us got laid off. And I went with them and eventually learned a whole lot about a lot of other things <laughs> as I moved from job to job. But... I was treated very well in the rural companies. They were very happy to have anybody who could draft. And by then, they had a lot of women in there too. And we worked together as teams. I always worked as a team on my jobs. I always had people not only to support, but to brainstorm with to how to do the best, how to make something the best way we could. And so it was an enjoyable job. Right now, after being out of it for 13 years, I can't tell you how to make anything. <laughs> <laughs> you forget. And it's just going from one, one science to another. Yeah. Isn't that crazy how our brains work that way? Mm -hmm. It does help me with my piecing. <laughs> but other than that, my math kind of stuck. But as far as how something's made, no way. <laughs> So you were up in Minnesota and you are now in West Virginia. Can you tell me about how you made that? Oh, that's an interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Mike and I graduated high school together up in Henning, Minnesota. We went through school. Actually, he came when I was in the fourth grade and we were in the same grade all the way through the same class. And uh, we walked off the stage together when we graduated and... I told Mike, I said, well, till we meet again, and he went his way and I went mine. So as years went on, I went back home and I met one of my girlfriends on the street in my hometown. 
there was something going on where she had a list of all of us in the class. And she says, you missed the reunion thing or whatever it was. And I said, well, I just got here, you know. <laughs> she started telling me where everybody went and what the classmates had done. And she had Mike's name on the list and she hadn't said anything about him. So I said, well, where did Mike go? And she says, well, he never came home from Vietnam. And so I just didn't ask any more questions. His family had moved from Henning to northern Minnesota. So when he came home from Vietnam, he didn't come to Henning. He came to northern Minnesota where his family was. He had been a medic in Vietnam. As a medic, he had come back and got interested in it. So he looked around and AB College in Philippi was the only college that gave an actual degree in a medical physician's assistant, a PA degree. Other places were training, but you had no credentials when you got out. You just knew how to do first aid, basically. But he got his credentials. He saw that he could get them here. So he moved down here and that's where he went to school. And that's how he came down then. But I had gone to Mexico and my brother went to Vietnam. So that was a little hard on my mom to have two of us out of the country for a year, but we both got back. Okay. <laughs> but then I got my job and then I met Bill and we married and we had our family and moved and did what we did. Well, life went on. And eventually Bill passed and the girls had graduated and gotten married, and I was by myself working. And Mike was down here, and his wife had passed, sadly, and uh, he was by himself, but he still worked at the college. He was in administration. He had been a PA for a number of years. He just stayed here. He liked it in West Virginia. And so when I was by myself, one of those days that I realized I was heading towards 60, and it wasn't as easy to learn a new drafting computer program as quickly as I needed to, as I used to do. <laughs> it was hard to learn in two days how to draft with a new computer program. And I was getting tired. The jobs were changing. I always had a job, but it was just a new one all the time, a new science to learn. And I read books as fast as I could read. In fact, I can't read a novel anymore. I'll read the beginning and I'll read the end and I'm done because I had to learn to pick out information from each paragraph and memorize every technical point that I had to know in order to learn the science to keep my job. And so as being really tired, I finally just sat down in my chair one night, my house, and I loved the house I was in. It was an old farmhouse that I'd bought. and. I uh, said, okay, God, I'm done. <laughs> I'm really done. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. And uh, my daughter had said, well, why don't you get on Facebook? As she told me earlier, get a Facebook account because we post things and you'll see what we are doing as kids, you know, with our kids. And so I made a Facebook account. We'll come to find out later, Mike's daughter had told him the same thing. And being the old fuddy-duddies we were in our 60s, early 60s, we decided Facebook isn't going to find out any more than our name, the year we graduated high school, and what high school it was. <laughs> That's all they needed. <laughs> so this evening I had sat down and I thought, well, I just got a new laptop. I should see if I can get on Facebook. I opened up the laptop and it was already on, but I got what they called the blue screen of death. That was when the thing would crash, and I thought, I just bought this. But as I was thinking that and looking at that blue screen, a scroll came across the top. And it was really funny because on the scroll it said, do you know Mike Holt? And I thought, well. <laughs> and so I thought, well, it doesn't hurt. You know, I'll see who he is. I kind of Googled him, but there were like seven or eight or nine Mike Holtz on the East Coast. That It didn't tell me much. So I had my daughter do the same thing, and she found him as related to the school and what position he had, and so she told me. So I wrote to him, and I asked him if he remembered me. Because we weren't any special friends in school. Our class was one that everybody knew everybody, and everybody were friends. There were a few couples, but we weren't a couple. We just knew who we were. 
so I wrote to him and asked if he remembered me. And of course, Mike, with his sense of humor, he says, maybe I do and maybe I don't. <laughs> and so I wrote and explained what I was doing and who I was and what I'd been doing for the last 40 years, whatever it was. Then he wrote back and then we started calling and he called me every night for over a year. And we got to know each other basically over the phone again. I love history, but I didn't have time to read it. And he's a history buff. And so he would tell me what he was reading. He would tell me where he'd been and what he was doing and his hobbies and his hunting and everything. And finally, I was at this job where they told me, if we don't get the million dollar contract, you're going to be laid off in August. You have a week of vacation coming if you want to collect on it without losing that week. You better take it now. It happened to be Memorial Day. Well, Mike's mother-in-law was living next door, and he kind of watched over her. And so I had a place to stay, so I arranged to fly to Pittsburgh, and he picked me up, and I immediately realized, yes, he is the same person that I thought I was talking to. So we drove back to Philippi, and he was working full time. So I was with his mother-in-law and I got to know her a little bit. Then when he had time, he would take off and he drove me all over West Virginia. What was so nice was I had left Minnesota. It was gray, dirty snow, no leaves, no color. If you took a photo, you couldn't tell the difference between black and white and the color because it was so dreary. It was that time of the year. And when I got off the plane, everything was green, like here it is now. And the leaves were on the trees and the flowers were blooming. <laughs> the dogwoods were blooming. And I just couldn't believe it. it was such a, just a nice respite for a week just to see the color. And their blue-gray reunion celebration was going on at that time. And so he took me down to see what that was because they did that every year, celebrating the Civil War. Philippi, of course, is the first land battle of the Civil War, and that's what it's known for. If you go through, you'll have to go through the covered bridge. That was where they held their ground, you might say. They couldn't get in. But it was just a fun week and so different for me because Minnesota had become so dreary and it was so heavy for me because I was by myself. My kids were there, but one of them, but it was still different. You have nobody at home when you go. Well, of course, we had talked for a year and gotten to know each other pretty well. So that was when Mike asked me to marry him. And my first thought was, what can it hurt? <laughs> <laughs> because everything had already happened to me that was going to happen. I could only get better from there. And so I eventually just cleaned house and Moved everything. We hauled it down here, which that was a mistake. I should have just packed a suitcase and left. <laughs> <laughs> but it was okay. I'd collected a bunch of dolls by that time. And we just hauled everything down here. And I figured I'd just keep on going. And it's been very good since. I mean, God just put us together. It just worked out. That is so great. They have a saying down here, almost heaven. West Virginia is almost heaven. Well, to me, it was. <laughs> It was really good. And even though the winters can get cold and snowy, they're still not as bad. I didn't have to shovel. The snow doesn't last more than a day or so. Usually it'll melt off. So that's how I got down here. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else about your family you wanted to share? It was pretty typical, really, with growing up with a lot of people. You get to know, you deal with a lot of people. It was easy for me to deal with the technical stuff at work. I helped my dad in his shop. And so I had some idea what a shop was, what machinery was. But really, everybody's just kind of doing their own thing. <laughs> <laughs> Families tend to do that, don't we? So if you had the opportunity to talk to your great, great, great grandchildren in the future, what would you want them to know about you? I think the most important thing to me is my faith. And that would be one thing I would want them to know that I was a person who really believed and 
was very strong in my faith, only because I had to be, but also because that is my hope, that is my future, and that would be their future. And if anything, I would want them to know that I believed strongly enough because a lot of the things that happened to me, I either had some intuition before it happened or God would talk to me as I went through it. One interesting one was when I took this job with the food processing equipment, I had never seen any of that equipment in my life. (laughs) Didn't even know it existed. (laughs) But the first day, the president of the company wasn't there. She was going to train me in. She had to be gone. There was one other drafter, and he didn't have any time. He was overworked. So my first assignment was to draw a 90-degree conveyor belt with a metal detector perched on it so that as the food bags went through, if there were any screws or any metal ended up in the bag, an arm would come and knock it off the line. Well, I didn't know anything about that. All I knew was I had to come up with a conveyor section, 90 degree turn, and there had to be a metal detector on one side of it. Well, to make a conveyor with food grade belts and things like that, you have to follow certain specifications. I had been given two measurements. One was that the belt had to be a half an inch away from the side of the conveyor, and the other was that the sprockets in the return were only on one end because they're the ones that turn the belt. I did, had never seen one, and I was given some drawings. I asked the other drafter if he could explain to me how I got that belt to work. What does it sit on? He told me, he says, well, they have metal bars across that are sort of like triangles. But he says, I can't show you. I have to go. He was busy with another machine that had to be taken care of. So I said, okay, God, (laughs) I have no idea what that metal bar is. What is it? What am I going to make? And how does it work? And immediately, in the top of my mind, like if I were looking at a screen, was a quarter-inch thick steel flat bar that was cut with little notches on top, and the bottom went to triangles with a flat notch on the point. And there were three of them on the bottom and two notches on top. Actually, there were probably more than that because it was a 36-inch wide conveyor, so there were probably five triangles on the bottom. But I saw the plate as it needed to be as it was drawn. It was in full color. It was a gray metal plate with these notches and these triangles on it. And I knew what to draw. And all I had to do was make it a half inch shorter than the side of the conveyor because the belt would ride on it. And then there were bars that were welded to those notches and to the triangles underneath for the return. And it suddenly dawned on me, that's how that conveyor is made. And I was able to draw the sides and the legs and everything else that went with it because I had that brace that held the bars of metal on which the belt rode. That's not the first time God showed me how to make something. (laughs) (laughs) My whole life was basically God showing me how to do things and what to make and what things were. And it's followed me all the way through. So. I would want them to know that they are not alone. They are not lost. You talk to God, he answers you. He talks back. I don't know how, except that I taught both my girls. (laughs) And I tell my kids, Mike has three and I had two, so we have five together now. I tell them, talk to God, ask him. Because I did that as a little kid. I remember my mother's prayers. And I remember how God answered prayers in our family. And he still answers prayers today. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's a dialogue when I talk to him Mm -hmm. because I get it back and it's comforting. I remember one old lady saying that when I'm in trouble, I go to the top. Well, (laughs) now I know what she meant. (laughs) 
<laughs> I go to the top. <laughs> I love it. Besides quilting, are there other crafts that you do or have done? Oh, God basically set me on this earth and said, if you starve to death, it's your own fault. <laughs> <laughs> I do artwork. And if you look around, this picture is one from an old brownie camera photograph of my mother. She and my dad had just gotten married. And the lilies had grown taller than my mother was. She was about 5'4", five, 5'3", five, somewhere. So he took a picture of her in the lilies. And I took that picture then and painted it. And that's the lake we grew up on. If you look in there, there's a boat. That's one I painted of me with that cousin that I played with a lot. We had gone on the lake. Boat weighed a ton. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have other pictures of my brother's fishing. I remember my mother holding me and telling me, look at the ducks. And my sister and brother were feeding corn to the ducks on the lake. And so that was something I remembered. So I painted that. I paint a lot from memory. The, the boat picture is memory. And I want to get more into the artwork. I do that. I do music, but I'm not professional at that by any means. <laughs> now it's a case of who wants to hear an old lady sing. You know? <laughs> but I used to sing. And uh, I played flute. Then, of course, I have the dolls. You probably see them all over the place. And eventually I'll sell them off or give them away. When I came down, I had well over 5,000 dolls. I had bought out a lady's business thinking I would do that in my retirement. And a lot of them were the plastic and vintage 70s. They were still playable. The ones that weren't, I simply tossed because they were just too unhealthy to be given to a child. But the ones that were good and had all their parts and were playable, the quilt group actually helped me. For four years, we took <laughs> as many dolls as we could, and we cleaned them up. We washed them to be safe for a child to play. We dressed them, and we made them each a doll quilt. And a lot of the quilts that were made were big enough for a baby because these families who got them, we gave them to a local church then who distributed to people who needed Christmas gifts. And for four years, we gave them well over $100 each year. I don't even know how many. I didn't keep track. <laughs> but anything that was playable, we gave away. And they were fully dressed. And each one had a on pajamas or a nightie and a blanket that went with it. They could make anything else they wanted to. And a lot of the women made a bunch of clothes. And then I wrapped them all in cellophane so they stayed as one unit. And uh, they distributed them at Christmas. And we just enjoyed it. And that has been a hobby of mine that has mixed with the sewing just all the time. <laughs> I mean, I just do it. And I love dressing them. And we didn't have a lot of dolls, nice dolls as kids. We each got one, I think, from my grandma at some point or another. And uh, my younger sister had gotten a great big doll one Christmas. And We'd pass it around and say, smell a new doll, new doll. <laughs> but I was looking at her doll, and she raised a fuss. She was like three or something like that. And my mother says, give her back her doll. You're too old for dolls. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so I gave it back, and I was sat down, and I thought to myself, one of these days I'm going to have more dolls than all of them put together. <laughs> <laughs> I did, too. <laughs> Don't do that to yourself. <laughs> I ended up with more dolls than a lot of people had put together, but I've enjoyed them. I got rid of what I didn't need and what I don't want. And I'm still, if somebody wanted to, I suppose, learn how to do it, I could give them some pointers. But I learn a lot off the internet. But for a price, they could <laughs> appropriate my doll business. <laughs> It never became a business because shortly after I got down here, I was setting up to sell and, and fix and, and work with dolls. And I was diagnosed with cancer. It was very small, very early, and I've been cancer-free ever since. But the dolls had to go. <laughs> <laughs> and so I still have some left that need repair and stuff. If somebody's interested in buying them, they could come and see me. 
the postage is so high, I haven't really sold anything now because I have to mail it. There's no profit in it. Mm -hmm. I'd have to have somebody who was interested enough to come and pick them up. But they are part of my hobby. I still do that. have a few that I'll keep simply because I like them, but most of them I would distribute someplace, somehow. <laughs> yeah. Looking around, so does that include teddy bears? Actually, the teddy bears are Mike's wife, Pat, and oh, okay. they are so cute. And they are, some of them are really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I've given away most of the teddy bears to the kids and the grandkids, and some of them went along with the dolls as gifts to other kids. But some of them I kept, most of them are Boyd's bears. And like this one is jointed, you could do just about anything to it. And so I kept them with respect to the kids coming home. They would see some of their mother's things. Yes. And so I just left them. But I like the bears. <laughs> <laughs> they just mix really well. <laughs> <laughs> that is so wonderful of you to have some of her things here for her kids. Well, Mike tells me that we would have gotten along really well. <laughs> she had many interests. And when I looked at her sewing that she had done, it was perfect. It was really good. I almost didn't want to compare mine. <laughs> no, there shouldn't be a comparison. But that's great that you can do that for her. Do you think any of these hobbies show up in your quilting? I believe the art does. I have yet to follow an actual pattern of blocks. Every quilt I've done has been put together with what I've got designing into something nice to look at and that will last. Much of the design work is simply intuitive. One of these days I'll follow a pattern. <laughs> that When I discovered printed panels, that's when I really enjoyed making the quilts because then you have the center of the quilt the main part of it is already there. It's a picture. Then I just work around it with similar fabrics and complementary fabrics. Mm -hmm. How were you introduced to quilting or who introduced you to quilting? Well, my mother made our quilts and I remember helping her cut pieces and I watched her sew them together because batting was really quite expensive. Occasionally she would send some sheep's wool to, it's the woolen mills anyway, up in Bemidji. She would send wool up there and they would make it into a wool batting. But those went for the older kids and for the least likely to be soiled areas. When she needed batting for our quilts, the younger kids, she would get old clothes and coats. Back then the coats were made of wool. And so she would cut the coats up, take out the largest pieces and wash them. And the ones that, if she reversed it, it looked new, those got made into coats for us. But if there was just nothing more than just a panel of wool, she would sew that into a batting and put that in the center of the quilt. That's how we were kept warm with those wool coats between the backing and the design, they were heavy. <laughs> I, can, I, I can tell you they were heavy, but we did not freeze because with wood heat, you often have a situation where if you're upstairs, it's 50 degrees in the morning when you get up. And so we did fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that warm actually. <laughs> yes, that's about it. The upstairs was cold, but I watched her make the quilts. I learned how to do it with basically nothing because we didn't buy new material for quilt tops. We cut up old dresses and old shirts. If it was too bad, it went into what my mom called carpet rags. If it was fairly good, but nobody was wearing the dress for whatever reason, we'd turn it into quilt blocks. Oh, interesting. So we'd cut around cardboard shapes. The triangles were all cut as neatly as possible around the cardboard shape. And the method was just the same, except that we didn't have the fancy cutting equipment or the brand new materials. In fact, if you ever repair a quilt that has been used, you never use new material. You take a worn shirt or a worn dress of cotton 
and you take the worn piece of fabric and patch it with the worn piece, and it'll stay with it. It won't tear off. Mm-hmm. Makes me think of the scripture of the... The old wineskins? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Do you have a favorite quilt? Actually, one I've got. It's my favorite because it picks up fabrics over the years. I've sewn them together and then cut my fan shapes out of them. It's a fan quilt. It's all scraps from all the clothing I'd sewn for the girls and for my sisters or my brothers or whatever. Anything left over that they didn't want, I turned it into just sewing the scraps together. And that's what the fan pieces are cut from. It's it's become my favorite because of the colorful way it's made. I thought you were going to say it was your favorite because of the memories it brought back. Well, that does too, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because I can tell this was so-and-so's dress, this was so-and-so's. And and I've sewn for a lot of people. So uh, some of them, the clients who didn't want to keep their scraps just told me to do whatever I wanted with them. And sometimes there were yards of fabric. In fact, that became my first stash when I started down here. Most of my actual quilting as to the technical part of it, I've learned since I've come down here with the ladies of the Eye of the Needle group, because I didn't know the technical part of it. I just knew what my mother did. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's basically, I picked up a lot since I've come down here. So with learning about the different tools that we use now, is there a tool you're so happy you get to use? Somebody gave me their grandma's quilting frame that they had seen their grandma use, but she didn't care for it. She didn't need it. She wasn't quilting. She didn't want it. Mavis, do you want this? I looked at it. Mike and I didn't even know how we went together. (laughs) But we cleaned it up. It had been stored for years. So we cleaned it up and I put new muslin fabric on it to hold the quilt. And it's my favorite. It's like eight feet long and it's only this wide. So I can, I use it to tie quilts with, especially the large ones. I'm learning to free motion, but I can't do it with a very large quilt yet. And so this large frame will take up to a queen size quilt and I just roll it on and uh, tighten it up and tie it. And Mike helps me tie them. (laughs) Oh, nice. So it's just a lot of fun to use that. A handy one, of course, is the cutting wheel, cutting blocks. Yeah. (laughs) Like I mentioned, there's always more details than what we ever imagine. And so after getting into quilting, I realized how many steps we go through. Mm -hmm. And so do you like each step along the way, or do you have a step that you look forward to doing in your quilting? Mine is the top. I like designing the top. It gets to be work after you're done with the top. (laughs) (laughs) I do enjoy free motion, but it has to be a fairly small quilt at this point. Baby quilts are fun to do because I can do them with a sewing machine. Yeah. Sometimes I'll just do the diagonal squares, but other times I'll do the free motion with all kinds of designs. That's what I enjoy most is making the top, doing some free motion stuff, but then having it done. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to finish, but it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Share your worst quilting experience. (laughs) Ah, actually it was years back. After my mother had passed, she had showed me a couple of quilt tops she was working on, and she didn't have a back for them, and she didn't have any batting at that point. She was still just making the top design. And they were flower basket, where you have the little squares making the flowers, and each square then, each block had its basket and flowers. And she had managed to get them all together, but that's all the further she got. I knew about them, but with life going on, I believe I asked somebody once if they had finished them, and no, they hadn't bothered with them. Well, it was about 10 years later that one of the girls says, I washed those quilt tops. You can have them now. (laughs) 
And so that ended up being one of the worst jobs I've ever done. I was so determined because my mother made them and there were two of them. And so I was giving one to each of my daughters in memory of grandma. But having been stored in a basement, gotten a little bit probably moldy, I don't know what was on them, but she washed them in the washer and hung them on the line. And uh, they were clean, but good grief, the, <laughs> the condition they were in were something else. And I had to redo almost every block. But I wanted so much to have a memory of grandma that I, I stuck it out. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a special backing for them so that the girls have, they use them as their company quilts when somebody needs extra quilting when they're staying over. But that had to be the hardest, I guess. I wouldn't say the worst, but it was the hardest <laughs> that I've ever done because it was so broken up. I can only imagine. <laughs> I'm picturing a bunch of loose threads. Not completely loose, but just all tangled. Yes. There were a few blocks I had to redo. Luckily, I'd given my mother most of the scraps. So, <laughs> so when I got them back, in one or two occasions, had the same fabric yet. But it was funny. It's just, I looked at them and I thought, there's no way I can finish this. <laughs> but they got done. And they were to quilts that I tied because that was the method she used. So my daughters each have one of them. That is so nice. Why do you think you continue to make quilts rather than spend your valuable time doing anything else? Uh, <laughs> For one, it's a tremendous satisfaction to finish a quilt. The other is the need. One of the reasons I don't paint as much as I'd like to is that there's a need. And I can fulfill that need because everybody can't quilt. I mean, even if they knew how, they can't. Plus, there are people who are just in situations where they just don't have what they need. It'd be nice to make them faster, <laughs> you know. But I found that I had to put a kind of a limit on what I do. And so in this case here, I found that foster kids are often given a quilt because when they are taken from their homes, no matter what age they are, they go with basically the clothes on their back and the books they've had from school. They have nothing. Well, that quilt becomes theirs and they can take it wherever they go. And especially babies, they need to keep them warm, you know. But the other then is heart and hands. They collect things for people who just have nothing for their babies. We make quilts and donate them. And so anything that's too small to use for a regular quilt for a teenager, as they go smaller, the smallest is the crib quilt. I can make those little blankets and still use up bits of stash. The other reason to make quilts, somehow I keep adding to my stash. <laughs> I've got to do something with it. <laughs> and so the last thing was Joanne Fabric going out of business in Clarksburg this last spring. Their rules were you had to buy everything on the bolt if you wanted that fabric. There were a few where I ended up with eight, nine, ten yards of something that's all alike. <laughs> and so these. Quilts, I doubt that they'll be pieced. They're simply going to be cut to size and tied or quilted one way or another just to make a quilt out of it. There'll be one fabric on one side and another fabric on the other, simply to clear up space. My sewing space is mostly storage. When we moved here, Mike says, you can have the whole basement. I don't want to do the stairs, but you can't touch the garage. <laughs> <laughs> so my stuff is in the basement. But most of it is stored to keep it a good climate around it because both the dolls and the fabrics need dry air. And so I hate to tell Mark, but I won't be buying as much. I only <laughs> buy what I absolutely need to finish something because I have to use up what I've got. It goes fast, though, when, like I say, I don't piece the quilts. I simply cut one fabric for one side and one for the other. And they're nice fabrics. They're cartoon characters, Flintstones and princesses and that type of thing. 
And so they'll fit very well for the size of kid I make them for. And I stick to Barber County because everybody needs a quilt when it comes to needy people. And I can only do so much. So I stick to pretty much what's in Barber County. But I've really enjoyed just being able to put the stuff together. I get donations of fabrics and stuff once in a while where you don't want to toss it, but you can't do anything because it's only so many pieces or something. And it doesn't match anything else. But that's where my design fun comes in. I sit and put design fun in stuff. And I make a top out of it anyway. We recently had a misfortune of a family where we used to live. We used to be in Philippi, the neighborhood there down the block. Somebody lost their home and they had like five or more little ones. Since I had made a lot of smaller quilts, getting them ready to give to the foster kids, I simply rerouted them to the family so that the kids would have something to sleep under right away. But that's the type of thing I do. It gives me good satisfaction. Do you have a special project going on right now? I have one that I'm sewing by hand because somebody made 60 blocks of Grandma's Flower Garden, but they're only one circle, but they end up being a good-sized block. Well, when you have hexagons, you almost have to sew them by hand. So I bought them because I figured that was a lot of work, (laughs) and nobody's got it in a quilt. It's just a stack of blocks. And I have this favorite place in Elizabeth City where our daughter lives that I go to. And so I've picked these up there and they're already made. So I bought some of Mark's fabrics. We match something that would go around each of these and I can get them together, but I have to do it by hand. That's the project I've been working on. Oh, wow. (laughs) But most of the time it's just get something sewn together, get it quilted so that it's ready to give. That's what I enjoy most is just getting it done. Well, you mentioned that your sewing space is in the basement. Do you want to describe that area? Well, the people who had been here before had finished the entire basement. So it's really nice. Right now it's for storage. I'm still basically moving in. We've only been here, what, a year or so. But I've pretty much determined part of it is for storage. Then there's a little room in the back that I divided just for sewing. And that has a lot of storage in it also. But that's where my sewing machine is. Then Mike gave me an old drafting table, which works perfectly for cutting. So that's a large table and that works really well. Several years ago, I saw a large machine for a really good price. What was nice was it was long so that the quilt would go through inside the machine. And so I got that and put it on a cart that rolls. And all I have to do is do my free motion on that. And I add a little table to that to hold the quilt. For those two spaces, that's where I really run the machines. And I had bought a new machine from Mark, and I'm still learning to use that. (laughs) It takes a while to kind of get the embroidery down. I hadn't done real embroidery before. Uh Uh-huh. And so I'm still learning that one. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, I stopped by his shop and it looks like he has some nice machines there to choose from. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I got one that you can download the pictures from the internet and it'll just embroider them right on. I'm more interested in putting it on clothing, but (laughs) (laughs) but I can see where it really works well for machine stitching and embroidering on blocks. Yeah. I have a small embroidery machine and I use it to make my labels. Mm. I'm interested in writing my own program to make a half inch buttonhole. For some reason, you can't make a good buttonhole. They end up with square ends. I kept my old Kenmore from 1980 because it makes beautiful buttonholes with its template. That's all I do with it. It's wearing out, but that's all I do with it. It makes beautiful rounded ended buttonholes. I'm looking forward to trying to write a program. I want a half inch buttonhole and I put it on that program. It's going to put it where I want it and it'll have rounded ends. Oh, nice. I also had a 1980 Kenmore machine, but 
my daughter liked to get into the sewing room and turn all the knobs. Ooh. It doesn't and, work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I learned to fix my own, really, because I had to. Well, for a long time, all I had was Kenmore's because they were mechanical and they had to work. And I always had a backup because I worked for clients who the wedding was such and such a date. You had to be done. <laughs> I kept the one because of the buttonholer. Share a quilting tip. Don't start a new one until you have the other one done. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I guess that would be the most useful tip. But to me, it's just enjoying putting them together. I get them to a certain point. And like I say, I've learned a lot with working assembly lines. And so in manufacturing, it's very easy for me now to set up. I have a bunch of quilt blocks. They're five and a half inch. And I've got them set up as to what order I want them in. And I've pinned them and labeled the top of each row. But I need the sashing between. So one of my next time I go to Mark's, I'll be looking for a certain flannel because it's a flannel top. And it'll be big enough for a teenager when I get done. But I need the sashing in between the blocks. And I need it to either be red or to that effect, or black or, or to that effect. You know, it can be a print. It's just, it needs to be a flannel that's going to match what's on there. Then, of course, I'll have to figure out what to put on the back. But because I don't have that sashing, I've got it set up so that when I get the fabric for that, I can pick that baggie full of blocks and just put it together and start sewing on it. The other thing is once I get the tops done, then I can cut the batting to fit it and sew the back the way I want it. I just roll it all up because that's another, it's ready to go for whichever way I decide to finish it. I have three quilts sitting there ready to move to the next step. One thing that's different for me, I'm sure from many quilters, is I don't have little kids running around. You know, I don't have something distracting me. If I want to go someplace, I just make sure Mike knows so he doesn't schedule something, you know. But it's a case of where I'm pretty much free on my own time. And so I can do it in any method I want. I say make as many as you can fit <laughs> in your time. Yeah, we all have our different amounts of time, don't we? Tell me about how you found out about Mountain State quilting. I wasn't aware of it coming into town or anything. We had our monthly Eye of the Needle quilt club group. And suddenly this big guy walks in and his mother walks in and he introduces himself. And I'm thinking, what about a quilt store? <laughs> I haven't heard of this, you know. But he told us who he was and, and what he was doing, and his mother was with him at that time. They explained what their plans were and that we would be free to not have to drive out of town to get what we needed. And that really appealed to me because we always have to either go to Elkins or Clarksburg or further to find fabrics. And it's fun to do that on a nice day for a day drive, but if I need something right now, I found out about it just because he came and told us as a quilt group he was starting this business. I was very happy for that. <laughs> I like that idea. He's so close to you, just down the road. Tell me what your thoughts were when you walked into his shop and what you thought about his shop. My first thought was, this is too small for what... <laughs> What I need. <laughs> Not so much what I needed, but what he needed, really, because he had told us his different plans and everything. And I thought the fabric takes a lot of space, but I do enjoy looking at everything that comes in new all the time. And I know if I don't get down there, it's going to be gone. So I keep trying to go see what he has each season and or whenever he says he has something new in. It's fun to just see the different patterns he has because many times a lot of the things I put together for a top, you can't just buy any old fabric to match it. We have to have something unique. 
and often he can pull it off and he'll help me. That's what I really like about it. I'm not sitting there wondering, am I seeing what I need or is it just my opinion? You know, he knows his inventory and it's nice and fast. He seems very easy to talk to. Yeah, we enjoy many conversations. If I get lonesome, I'll have Mike drop me off at the fabric shop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I so appreciate Mark Tenney getting a hold of you so that I could hear your story. I've loved hearing your story. So thank you so much, Mavis. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.